Truth Espresso, episode 64. Face it, we all would rather sleep in this morning. <sighs> That's why God gave us espresso to kickstart our zombified corpses into hyperdrive. <laughs> And now, giving your mind and soul the morning shot of truth it craves. This is Truth Espresso with Daniel Minnick. Well, hey there, this is Daniel Minnick, your host for Truth Espresso. Welcome. I hope you are looking forward to some very controversial things to discuss on this episode. Yes, Truth Espresso is not a podcast to shy away from controversy. At Truth Espresso, we like to go beyond conventional thinking, go beyond the mainstream way of thinking about things. And that is obvious when we get to the topic of democracy. Now, even a lot of Christians want to champ democracy as the ideal form of government. They want to champ democracy as if that's what the United States has always been about. They want to champ democracy as the threshold of virtue and that everything else is tyranny and down with tyranny up with democracy, the voice and will of the people. And so a lot of Christians get caught up in this idea that democracy is the be-all, end-all of individual liberty, the will of the people, and change, especially change that gets rid of old oppressive regimes and moves toward something that is much more livable and comfortable for the average person or for the poor, the oppressed, the minorities. And so, yay for democracy. And in the last episode, I would recommend that you listen to the last episode if you haven't, because it somewhat counterbalances this one, because the last episode we asked the question, what is appealing about democracy? And we did list things. We didn't shy away from it. We listed things that were positive about democracy, especially as they compared with things like monarchy or autocracy or oligarchy or aristocracy or plutocracy democracy definitely shines against all of these when we compare the positives about democracy but in this episode i want to shatter your hopes and dreams a little bit so get ready for that Now, of course, you know, you have to be ready to think democracy is not some divine thing. It has to have its drawbacks, right? I mean, it's... Democracy wasn't some written document that fell out of heaven glowing in the hands of an angel. Democracy has its good things, yes, but we need to be willing, we need to be open-minded to see some of the drawbacks of democracy. And so in this episode, we're going to answer the question with quite a few points about what are the problems with democracy. 
And then we'll answer the question, where does democracy actually work in a positive way that isn't really what people make positive, that's not really positive, if you can understand that. But we'll get there and I'll demonstrate to you where I think democracy actually does work in the best possible way. And so, where does democracy actually work will be the second question that we'll answer. And then, the third and final question to answer will be, is there anything better than democracy? (laughs) So, let's start asking ourselves this question. What are the problems of democracy against the positives that we have already acknowledged in the last episode. So problem number one with democracy is that it is not based on absolute unchanging truth. Now, especially for people who would consider themselves on the left, they might be scowling and staring at me if I were to say something like that and basically say, yeah, and your point is, <laughs> you know, because there are people who support democracy who would support it because they don't believe that there's any absolute unchanging truth. They believe that absolute unchanging truth is a barrier to progress. But I will list this as a problem that democracy is not based on absolute unchanging truth. There is no recognition of absolute morality in a pure democracy. And remember, I mentioned that the founding fathers said that the experiment in American government would not last as long as people are not trained to understand virtue and morality. Like, they have to understand absolute truth for their votes to be of any good. (laughs) And so, if people are voting based on something that only benefits themselves and that they don't really care what is true or what is good for everyone else, but they only want to vote on what they can get for themselves, then the problem of a pure democracy is that people can act purely out of self-interest. Now, I want to distinguish between two types of self-interest. One self-interest could be self-sufficiency, and while we could say that there are moral issues with someone who is totally self-absorbed, if that person is self-absorbed in a way that they take care of themselves highly and don't impose anything on anyone else, although that may be morally lacking, it's not destructive to other people. But if someone acts in self-interest in a democracy, they could be voting to rob someone else, actually impose something on someone else for their gain. And that's the number one problem with democracy. It is not based on absolute unchanging truth. And of course, as a Christian, we should recognize that the word of God is our standard of absolute truth. And so a pure democracy is simply not compatible with the Bible because whatever we're allowed to vote on, it 
must exclude the laws that God gave to people that protect their individual liberty, their right to not be killed, their right to not have things stolen from them. And as the word of God says, thou shalt not steal. How do we even define that in a pure democracy if it just means, oh, you can't take something that doesn't belong for you without voting on it first? I don't think that what God had in mind when he instituted thou shalt not steal, it means you do not steal, period. And so the majority rule can change. It cannot be an absolute standard. And so that is the problem. Number one problem with democracy, it is not an absolute standard of truth. The number two problem with democracy (laughs) is really an issue of democracy itself. It's an issue of how do we define it. Problem number two, the eligibility to vote is not certain. And you might be scratching your heads and wondering, why? I mean, haven't we figured out how to get everyone to vote? Well, let's think of every single human being on the planet, or not on the planet, but in the nation. Is every single individual able to vote? Of course not. (laughs) We have laws about who's eligible to vote, and those have changed over time. Now, we can look in the past and we can make a case that justice has prevailed in changing to allow people of every ethnicity to vote and women to vote. But what age are people allowed to vote? You know, should it be 30 years old? Should it be 25 years old? Should it be 21 years old? I mean, what is a hard and fast rule that says a 20-year-old certainly should not be able to vote, but a 21-year-old, oh my goodness, of course, yes. And, well, right now, 18 is determined as the age appropriate to vote. Well, why is that? Why 18? Is everyone magically mature the day they turn 18? Like, you know, we know that plenty of people can be far more mature that are 12 years old and other people who are 18 are not. And, you know, whatever you set the age at, that's still arbitrary and you still include people on one side and exclude them on the other. And what about mental capacity? I mean, shouldn't we raise the question? I don't want to sound biased. This is just a thought experiment. Shouldn't we raise the question about the the mental capacity? Should there be a, a an IQ test to, to determine if someone's eligible to vote? And of course, understandably, people would be gasp in horror and say, what kind of a tyrant are you that everyone has to pass your arbitrary intelligence test to vote. But if someone is not smart enough to recognize, you know, what's good for him or her or for other people, wouldn't their voting for weird things be a problem? What are other qualifying factors that could determine 
if someone's eligible to vote. I mean, there are people with serious health issues, um, dementia, uh, brain injuries, and do we have to require them to be able to vote? And could there be any corruption with that? Like, let's say someone didn't understand or has lacks the capacity to understand any of the political issues, but a guardian, a family member, a friend could easily just tell that person, here, if you want something good, vote for my candidate. And they say, okay, and there's the vote. But yet we could say that that was manipulated and it basically allows some people to vote twice. (laughs) So there are problems with voting. It's highly arbitrary. You can't get babies to vote. You can't get two-year-olds to vote. Um, hey, let's let's think about it. Imagine if the voting age were lower to six years old. Everyone six years old and over should be able to vote. I mean, come on. We recognize that six-year-olds are people too. They have interests, okay? So what would happen if six-year-olds were allowed to vote? I mean, can't six-year-olds be proper citizens? Don't they have political interests? But just picture with me six-year-olds being able to vote. And six-year-olds and seven-year-olds and eight-year-olds and nine-year-olds, and they like candy. (laughs) And so imagine if the voting age were six years old and up and a bunch of six-year-olds to 12-year-olds and diabetic adults all got together and were able to overwhelm the majority and vote for free candy for them. (laughs) So, yeah, there is no absolute way to organize the eligibility to vote, which really is foundational to a democracy. Number three problem with democracy. A simple majority is not really the will of the people. Now, you might object to that and say, well, if you have a majority, we should be able to say that's the will of the people. Because if more people are for something than against it, shouldn't they reflect the will of the people? Shouldn't they be able to represent the will of the people? Well, let's consider this. 51% of the people could vote and be a majority and they can plunder the other 49%. In fact, someone could exercise his or her right to vote in a democracy and be in the minority every single time. They can be oppressed every single time, hypothetically. Someone could always end up voting on the wrong side of an issue and always be oppressed. He or she could have his rights stripped away and the fruits of his or her labor plundered over and over again simply because he or she always happens to be in the minority on every issue. And so being in the minority on every vote in every issue would not make democracy appealing to some people. Thomas Jefferson in 1790 wrote a letter to a certain William Hunter, and Thomas Jefferson said, The Republican is the only form of government which is not eternally at open or secret war with the rights of mankind, unquote. 
And so if a simple majority, 51% of the people can vote and there's no absolute standard, they legitimately can vote to plunder the 49%. Thomas Jefferson said that a Republican form of government is the only one that isn't constantly against human rights because the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness is not really protected in a pure democracy. It is up in the air. At any time, the 51% can vote away the rights of the 49% and plunder them to satisfy the 51%. Is that the will of the people? No, that's the problem with majority rule. And so we could say that a better democracy would not just be a simple majority, but require a much larger majority. But still, you're only pushing the problem a little further, because what if 99% of the people voted to plunder the 1%? We've heard, we've seen the campaigns against the 1% and how the 1%, the rich elites, are robbing the 99%. And in some cases, if they're hooked up with government and passing laws to plunder the 99%, then yes, that's a problem. But on the other side, having the 99% plunder what 1% may have just legitimately gained by inventing, producing products and not oppressing anyone, but 99% or 51% could get greedy and plunder the rest. And so that's the problem of democracy. Rights are up in the air and are at the whim of the majority. Problem number four, it encourages factions to develop. And we think about this, there are political parties. Now, yes, we have freedom of association, and it's okay to associate with people who are of one mind. You have a common goal. But the problem with democracy is that you don't really have everyone just thinking about the basic human rights of individuals. With a democracy, there's always a war to try to get your ideals into the majority. So you have factions developing and the factions are often in their own interest and they battle each other and the battle of ideas can get fierce. And as we've seen every single presidential election, there's a bigger divide. There's more angst. There's more fear, uncertainty, and doubt. It's always the biggest election in the history of the country. And factions can end up ridding the basic humanity that we all share in common and basically treat each other as not human unless you're involved in your faction because your faction is the most sane and all the other factions are of the devil. And so democracy often puts people at odds and at social war with each other when otherwise, without being politicized, they would be good neighbors with each other. Problem number five with democracy, people constantly have to vote defensively just to protect themselves from coercive policy. 
Now, I'm one of those people who believes in absolute truth and basic human rights. As long as you have that and the protection of that, there is no need to be constantly churning out laws and voting on new things. And it seems like almost everything that is up for vote is always something that plunders, that redistributes wealth, that robs people, that requires increased costs more and more and more taxes and all I want is to just be left alone there are enough people in this country who just want to be left alone and stop having to keep going to the polling booth every time there's an election just to say please knock it off already please leave me alone stop trying to infringe on my basic human rights and steal from me John Adams In 1772, in Notes for an Oration at Braintree, Massachusetts, said, There is danger from all men. The only maxim of a free government ought to be to trust no man living with power to endanger the public liberty. And so that's one of the problems with democracy, is that a majority can danger the public liberty. And so people who often find themselves in potentially a minority are forced to rush to the polling booth and constantly vote defensively. Problem number six, special interests can craft confusing bills. Uh, I don't know if how many ballots you have read, how many ballot initiatives that you vote on and you read those initiatives they're they're not written in plain english they're not written in sixth grade reading they're written in legalese and and then you need to research you need to read different websites you need to have people and lawyers explain to you what these are really saying i mean it's ridiculous but that's one of the problems is that when you have special interests that want their initiative to pass and they know that if other people knew what this amendment really meant they would not like it but the language is crafted to be overly wordy unclear but it does what the special interest wants and the bills and initiatives can be confusing and you might exercise your right to vote but you might be voting for something that's gonna cut off your hands and feet uh, proverbially speaking So just exercising your vote is not good enough. You must be an informed citizen in a democracy. Problem number seven with democracy is that a nation, especially one as large as the United States of America, is not homogenous. What do I mean by that? There are cultural variances. It's made up of 50 states. And let's look at the difference in geography and climate. There's colder, warmer, drier, wetter areas than other areas. There's different regions. You have the Northeast, and they might have their interests. You have the Southeast, and they have their interests. And we recognize that in um, the war between the states in the 1800s. 
and you have the Midwest and their farming interests. And then you have uh, the Pacific Coast and their interests with apple orchards and surfing and stuff like that. And the, the, the geography of the nation is not homogenous. And because of geography, mountains, plains, beaches, oceans, lakes, um, bread baskets, deserts, there are different interests that form. There are different cultures. And these can contribute to specific interests. But when you look at the nation as a whole, what will you get as a majority? You have to get a bunch of different interests together. But the nation not being homogenous also means that there are some areas with their interests that have different population densities than other areas and their interests. And so every single presidential election in recent history, as we have acknowledged that the nation is pretty much forced to be almost divided 50-50, and you have the Republican Party and the Democrat Party and their cutthroat competition to get their candidate to be the president, and there is so much money spent and so much angst over who wins the presidency, and the election is usually very, very close. And what happens? You have people bashing the electoral college and people saying, why can't we ever just get rid of this old thing? It's so archaic. It doesn't enforce the will of the people because remember Hillary Clinton won more actual votes. She won the popular vote over Donald Trump. And yet, because of this ridiculous, archaic electoral college, we end up with a president who wasn't elected by the popular vote. And that's a tragedy for a democracy, right? Well, let's also think of why the electoral college was put in place. Let's think about the most popular cities in the United States. New York City is the most densely populated city, followed by Los Angeles and then Chicago and some other cities. But without the Electoral College, basically New York City, Los Angeles, Chicago, and all the other major cities would always rule the entire landmass. And People living in rural areas in the Midwest, all the farming communities, their interests are always up for grabs by people who live in the cities. So basically, the cities will always prevail over the country. Now, this already happens, by the way. But, of course, without the Electoral College, it would be even worse. And the largest cities would always have the largest stake in any election. And so the fact that the nation is not homogenous and that there are all these cultural, geographical, climate, and special interests spread throughout a nation that's diverse and uneven, one person's interest is not necessarily equal to another person's interest. And the popular vote will always come from the cities. And so a democracy doesn't take into account diverse interests. It only takes into account the number of votes. And 
One vote does not equal another vote when you're trying to take into account all the diversity. Problem number eight with democracy, elections for public office can become increasingly costly as faction interests grow more intense. As I kind of mentioned, it encourages factions, but faction interests keep growing and progressively becoming more and more intense. Just think about it. Every election is the most important election in the history of mankind. And think about, even compared to a monarchy, what's the cost of the next person to hold that office? Usually, the king passes the crown to his son. And there's no cost involved in that other than the cost to put on a a celebration, a party, a ceremony. But when it comes to a representative democracy where we have things like the President of the United States and all these other offices that are elected, millions and billions of dollars are spent over and over and over again on campaigns and traveling and literature trying to get a particular person in office and each side spends millions or even billions of dollars to dig up dirt on the other side and blast them and so democracy certainly has its financial costs and who benefits for this people who run campaigns advertising agencies and of course lawyers and media people and so democracy kind of leads to a transfer of wealth from people who work and earn and make a living honestly toward people who are involved in the propaganda industry and now finally problem number nine with democracy and i know not everyone's going to agree with me but i see this as a big problem problem number nine it naturally tends toward socialism and if you look at the modern democrat party They're the ones who focus on the word democracy. Remember Bernie Sanders and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and quite a few others of like mind. They call themselves democratic socialists. And it seems like the goals of this party that they emphasize so much the word democracy and they seem to connect it with socialism. And so in their eyes, democracy is not the means to protect individual rights to liberty and property. It is to force some kind of socialism. They believe that democracy is the proper engine toward wealth redistribution and social programs and government or socialized control over a lot of wealth and high taxes and redistribution of wealth. Here's an example. Jacobin Magazine has an article published on September 2nd entitled, Eugene Debs Believed in Socialism Because He Believed in Democracy. And so the goal of many people in democracy is to tend toward a socialist form of government. And what does socialism emphasize? Well, raw talent and dogged hard work that people use to better themselves and other people through enterprising means without any kind of threat of violence or plunder 
that goes away in, in socialism, or at least it's diminished or minimized. But how many people have raw talent and have a dogged hard work ethic to be the best they can be? People like this, the ones with the talent, are the ones that really work hard to shape things without in any way infringing on other people, they are represented by a minority of people. Think about this. There are relatively few engineers and inventors compared to the whole of the population. People who are willing to do low-skilled, low-wage jobs are going to be far more than people who are willing to push themselves to the limits and go up the ladder and take risks and try to do new things to better their lives and contribute to society by making more new things available. Those who come up with grand ideas and take risks and as entrepreneurs are going to be far fewer than those who don't. Those who have the acumen to manage resources efficiently and lead effectively will be few compared to those who don't. The rich are going to be relatively few compared to those who are not. The poor are always going to far outnumber the rich in every nation and at any time in history. And so when everyone, regardless of their acumen or their talent or their ability to invent and produce and take risks and be entrepreneurs, if everyone's vote is equal to everyone else, Sure, the vote becomes the great equalizer, but you could have people who don't have the drive to try to better themselves and others with their own labor, their own work, getting together and voting to plunder those who put in the hard work or have the talent to make things happen. And what does that do that ultimately stifles creativity. It stifles inventing. It stifles risk-taking if the reward is diminished. There are far fewer purely altruistic people that are going to work as hard as they can in a socialistic system to create new things if they're no better off or very little better off than if they save themselves the effort and save themselves the expense by just being one of those who receives from the redistribution from those who originally worked hard. And so democracy naturally tends to lead towards socialism because it is majority rule and those who have abilities are always going to be a minority compared to those who don't. Those who are willing to push hard are always going to be a minority compared to those who just want to get by and expect that things are naturally supposed to happen to give them comfortable lives. So, let's ask this question. Let's ask ourselves some questions based on the problems of democracy. What happens when there is no concept of absolute truth or inalienable rights of the individual? What happens when everyone gets an equal vote on leaders and laws? 
According to democracy, who rules? The majority. But we see that the majority will always be those who don't create businesses, invent helpful products, or manage resources efficiently. The majority will always be, naturally, those who are lesser capable, but could use things they didn't create or contribute to. It's much easier to spend money that you didn't earn. And that's the appeal of democracy. Under the idea, allegedly, of social justice is plundering the minority. But now, let's get to our second question. Where does democracy actually work? Well, the free market. Now you might be thinking, what in the world are you talking about? The free market is as far removed from democracy as you can get. Well, let's think about this for a minute. What is one way that we vote nearly every day when we live out our lives? When we go to the grocery store, we're voting. You say, what? Well, yes, we vote with our wallets. And when we go shopping, for instance, let's just picture, you know, where do you like to shop? We could shop at Walmart. We could shop at Target. We could shop at a local mom and pop store. We make that choice and we vote with our wallet and our feet. When we go to a store, let's say we pick Target and we're going to shop for bread. Well, when you go shop for bread, you don't just see things wrapped with the label bread. You see different kinds of bread. You see different prices. You see different flavors of bread. And what do you do there? You vote with your feet and your wallet. We vote on which brand of bread or clothes and what prices we're willing to spend based on what's being offered there. And no one's being forced to buy any particular thing and no one's being forced to sell any particular thing. So when we go shopping, we're practicing a form of democracy. We actually vote with our feet and our wallets in a wide array of different choices and options. And you know what's really cool about that? If I were to vote for Wonder Bread, I get Wonder Bread. I don't have to vote with other people over whether Wonder Bread gets sold in Target. We don't all have to get together and vote over which brand gets to be sold. The brands are there freely. There's no coercion. There's no gun enforcing that. There's no law enforcing that. I can vote with my dollars and my credit card, and I can choose which brand of bread I want. And when I make the choice, I actually get what I choose. I don't have to hope that a majority of people will agree with me. It doesn't matter. It doesn't concern them. I vote for the bread, and I get the bread. Isn't that the kind of democracy that we really want? We vote based on higher quality or lower price or a combination of both or either one. 
We vote between whether we prefer to use an iPhone or an Android. We vote whether our laptop or desktop is a Mac or a PC or, hey, even Linux or BSD or all other kinds of operating systems that are at our disposal. We can choose which one we want, and by choosing it, we get it. We don't have to get a majority of people to agree with us. We're free to disagree. We vote with our wallets and our vote actually counts. Now, isn't that the greatest form of democracy ever? Now, of course, I can pretty much hear the eye rolls from the listeners, but just think about it. Why should we always be about forcing other people to go along with us? Why should we not just simply recognize human liberty? And as long as people are not aggressing, we are free to make our own choices. We can make choices for other people, but there is no coercion. And democracy often results in constant coercion. We're forced to defend our rights or we're forcing other people to go along with us knowing that if the majority rules, they force the minority to do something or go along with something that they were adamantly opposed to. And this is unlike buying bread for my family at the supermarket. And now the final question. Is there anything better than democracy or centralized power? We looked at monarchies, we looked at democracy, we compared the two, but are either of these ideal or biblical? Well, the Bible does seem to have something to say about a monarchy, but if you remember that the people of Israel wanted a king to be like other nations, and that was against God's will for the nomadic nation during the time of the judges, God gave his law, there was a theocracy, the laws were really minimal, they didn't really intrude much on people's lives, there was the protection of individual liberty. But what did Samuel warn the people about when they requested a king? The king would cause more expenses. He would raise taxes. He would enslave people. And that was the downside of a monarchy. But of course, we looked at the downsides of democracy also. So is there anything better than democracy or centralized power such as in a monarchy? Well, perhaps we can focus on absolute truth and individual freedom. What if we didn't need either a king or a democratic system? What if we just simply focused on whatever means to ensure individual liberty and recognize the absolute truth of that, the absolute truth of God's word and individual freedom. And now let's think about these presidential elections. Let's think about 2020, how crazy of a year it has been. But there is so much political hype over who ends up sitting in the White House. And let's ask ourselves these sensible questions. 
Why do we have to keep fighting each other over control of everyone else? Can't we have a system where we let those who like Donald Trump and want Donald Trump as their president to have him as their president? And let those who (laughs) want Joe Biden, for whatever reason, have him? Why must every four years we have to have this intense civil war? Why can't we be human beings? Why do we have to fight tooth and nail over who calls the shots over everyone else for special interests and agendas? And each election cycle gets more intense, more fearful, and even more costly. And as I mentioned, every cycle is the most important election in history. But can't we think Just stop and think, isn't there a better way to do things? Isn't there a better way to be humans? Isn't there a better way to govern without all this hype, without all this money, and without all these agendas? Shouldn't we think that the best system of government is the least necessary system? The best system of government is the one that governs least the best system of government is one that just recognizes humanity it's one like in genesis 9 6 if you kill someone your sentence is death protect life protect liberty recognize individual humanity judges 21 25 as i mentioned in the last episode in those days there was no king in israel every man did that which was right in his own eyes Well, that verse condemns both the monarchy and the democracy. And now Isaiah 2, verse 22. We are told, Cease ye from man whose breath is in his nostrils, for wherein is he to be accounted of? So what is this verse saying? Stop trusting in man who breathes oxygen. Basically, to be in the place of God, stop trusting in humans to make things right. Trust in God. Trust in absolute truth. Trust in God's laws and trust in the laws that he gave. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not steal. Thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. And thou shalt not covet. And those laws make the most sense. They are minimal. All it means is people don't infringe on other people. That's the best form of government. Simple, to the point, not expensive. Doesn't infringe or rob or intrude and doesn't require billions of dollars spent on campaigns to lie and dig up dirt. And I realize that these ideals are such a pipe dream. But Christians, shouldn't we think this way? Shouldn't we recognize that God doesn't support a government that uses the force of a gun and coercion to redistribute wealth and rob people? He said, thou shalt not steal and thou shalt not kill. A government is not just if it imposes theft for something that's supposedly social justice. You do not steal and you do not threaten to kill. And the only valid laws, 
period for any government are you do not infringe on individual liberty and would to God we Christians understand this and get back to the Bible and we can be humans again. Enough with the warring factions. Just be humans. Just respect life, liberty, and property. And the role of government is only to punish infringement on that. Period. Please, Christian, consider this. And maybe if we can influence enough people to think this way, we can rid ourselves of the tyranny of both monarchical ways of thinking and democratic ways of thinking. Thank you for waking up with Truth Espresso. Good morning, and God bless your day. Hey friends, Daniel Minnick here again. If you liked waking up to this episode of Truth Espresso, I would really appreciate it if you would rate it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or whatever application you use to listen to Truth Espresso. 